Well, we got you last time. We, we got you uh, elected to the Senate. Uh, well, the '68 is that where we ended? Yeah. First of all, tell me how did you um, how did you pick a staff? I mean, presumably it was a, a larger staff in the Senate than you had in the House. I mean, what what was the process of adjustment? I guess from the House to the Senate. Well, let's see, sixty-eight. I can't remember how many people I brought. Surely brought my house staff with me, and I can't remember who they were. Yeah. But uh, I think in those days, I personally interviewed everybody. I mean, later on, Sheila do it, and others in the office uh, looking for expertise in the right committees. Yep. But uh, how important was it that they be a Kansan? It was pretty important to me, at least early on. Yeah. I mean, seeing me somebody come to your office and say, well, oh, I'm from New Jersey or I'm from Wyoming or whatever, kind of nice to have a Kansas. But I wasn't, you know, you didn't have to be from Kansas. And we we tried to keep a good team on the ground in Kansas, you know, constituent. And of course, in the early days, uh, you know, I wasn't going anywhere in the Senate, so we spent all our time on constituent service, which really pays pays off. Can't beat it. I mean, yeah, some small thing you do today pay big dividends the rest of your political life because those people are never going to forget it. And when it Is that a lesson in a sense that you were first in the House and sort of carry over yeah. to the Senate? But in the House, it was, you know, you ran every two years, so if you weren't tending to the store, uh, you could be looking for work. And, and I assume the and Senate. I went home almost every other, I don't know, weekend, you know, early on in the Senate, in the House. Uh, and that pays off, too. I mean, if you, people have seen you around other than election years. Is the Senate full of people who forget that lesson? I mean, I, over I, time that. Uh, I think their hearing improves every election year. They hear voices they haven't heard for years. They're, Oh, I've been thinking about that problem. Yep, and I get on that. Got my staff working on it now. Da 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 da. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I don't say it's intentional, but they get wrapped up in other things. And boy, once you forget where you're from, you're in trouble in this business. And when did you hire Joanne? Oh, I'd have to check. Yeah, I've got a record, but. But it was in the Senate. Yeah. I mean, she hadn't worked for you in the House. Yeah. What was her Yeah, best? she made a big difference. I mean, you know, she could. Uh, the stuff I do now longhand, r responding to letters, I have to do longhand, and Ruth Ann does it. I just give it all to Joanne and say, here's a, another pile. And yeah. Sooner or later, it'd be all the answers. Yeah. And whatever it was, whether it was raising money or, and she had this, you know, she could call CEOs. And they, Joanne Cole called them, would take the call. Why, yeah, why do you think that was? 
I don't know. I think what? we just people <laughs> who knew she was very efficient. She cut to the chase. She didn't waste her time. It's tough as nails. Her, I guess if her father was an admiral, maybe she learned it from her father. <laughs> but uh, no nonsense. And, uh, and utterly loyal. Oh, well, she slug anybody that said anything bad about Bob Dole. <laughs> Probably maybe too loyal. <laughs> well. But she would also tell me, uh, I don't get specifics here, but yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. Or, no, don't do that. Don't call that person. Da, da, da. Yeah. She was pretty careful. She didn't want, you know, any ethics or stories or... Uh, you know, because it is, it's legendary, the toughest job in the White House, and presumably... Yeah, in a lot of political offices, is whoever's job it is to say, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Uh, you know? Yeah. Well, Sheila Burke would do that, too. Yeah. But the point is, you, you recognize the need to have people like that around. Yeah, Gary Timchunk's another one who sometimes say, well, I'm not sure I'd do this. But yeah. I'd say, well, I'll do it anyway, you know. <laughs> he didn't always listen, but it was certainly nice to have. Sometimes they point out a very obvious reason you shouldn't do A, B, or C, or, or should do A, B, or C if you yeah. hadn't even thought of it. Yeah. So if you kind of keep it all to yourself, as some people do, uh, close to your chest, you know, you can make mistakes. I don't mean you have to error everything. Sometimes you have to. Make a decision on your own and keep it. Fundraising must have been, I mean, almost from day one, uh, of a different level from what it had been up until then. Was that uh, was that the case? And and how um, how much oh, I hated the it. The bane of my existence was fundraising. Yeah, I didn't mind going to fundraising events, but to get on the telephone. And to call somebody and say, you know, I'd like to have you send me a thousand dollars. Just almost, I couldn't, I could hardly do it. So what do you, what's the person going to do? Are they going to say no? I guess some did, or some said, well, let me think about it, or whatever. But if they've got, particularly when you're the leader of the Senate or the Republican leader, and you're calling up and saying da da da. Now, I wouldn't mind calling for, say, Rudy Boschwitz or somebody else and say, I'm trying to help Rudy raise some money. Now, Elizabeth's just the opposite. She's on the phone right now. She'll be on the phone today from, for six, seven hours. Really? And, you know, and nothing wrong with it. You have yeah. to do it. You think there's something about your upbringing that, uh, that uh, makes it difficult for you to ask for yourself as opposed to someone else? Or? Well, I think, yeah, I think that I've I never been one to, to ask for a lot of help. I try to do it myself, whether it's getting dressed or da -da -da, whatever. Maybe I learned it in the hospital. Yeah. But, uh, and once you make that personal call, you are going to be beholden in some way. You can't say, well, uh, doesn't mean you sell your soul, but at least the fellow can say, remember when you called me? March and I sent you that check. Thought you'd like to know I've got a little problem here. So, without without naming names, obviously, have there been instances where 
you know, people pretty blatantly wanted something in return. I mean, does that happen? Oh, I'm sure that happened, yeah. yeah. But there are people like uh, Dean Evans, since passed away, who would raise a lot of money for me. I can't remember ever asking for him. He just liked me, and he thought I was doing a good job. I beat the guy he supported uh, for Congress, Keith Sebelius, and we became good friends. And uh, Jordan Haynes from Wichita, another great friend, uh, he would never call for himself, but he would call and say, I've got this great friend in Phoenix who ought to be on the working for the DOD or this guy would be a great district judge. I mean, mm -hmm. things like that. Not because he gave me money, because he was my friend. He thought yeah. this was a great idea. And obviously, it didn't hurt him. And he'd go to somebody and say, well, Senator Dole's going to nominate or send your name in for a nomination. But he was just a good friend. He wouldn't, he wouldn't ask me to do anything I shouldn't do. So. Um. Did you think about what your priorities were going to be as a freshman senator? I mean, your your first speech, of course, was about disabilities. Disabilities, yeah. What what prompted that? Was that just a natural? Well, in the old days, they don't do it much anymore. But even even then, they didn't do a lot of it. I guess what forty, fifty, sixty years ago, they, when your maiden speech was quite an event, you know, and you you just didn't get up the first day and top off like they do now. I mean, you, long as, once you walk, set, set foot on the center floor, you can get up and say anything. And the, I think in, even when I arrived, at least you waited a while and sort of understood where the men's room was and where the Democrats were seated and where you were seated and all that. Uh, but it was important to me, and so I thought, well, let's talk about something that you know, maybe it'll make a difference. And I don't remember the gallery being packed or my room full of colleagues, but, but I did it every year after that, on that date or close to the date, depending on when the Senate was in session. Uh, but then, you know, I sort of became, according to the Washington Evening Star, the old paper, I became the sheriff of the Senate for Nixon on the Vietnam War. Now, what kind of uh, ongoing contact, if any, did you have with the White House during during that, say, during 1969? Um, either the president himself or yeah, I was trying to Alderman think when the uh, Hatfield-McGovern amendments. When were they? Say, oh gosh, yeah. Um, what year they started, but the fall of '69, when the the moratoriums and the the demonstrations yeah, the, were uh, really building. The bombing of Cambodia. I can't quite remember when. Uh, spring of '70. Is that '70? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, Lynn Offsiger sort of got me involved. He was in the White House. Uh, Or at least I think he was at least advising the White House. I mean, we've been at the RNC together. Uh, but I remember making TV spots on the Vietnam War, sort of the anti-protester spot, you know, 
sort of lauding the servers, men and women, da 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 da. But now the implication of that, of course, is that the White House wasn't altogether happy with the leaders it had. I mean, what, what, yeah. Well, well, let me back up for a minute because your first few months, of course, were the last months of Ev Dirksen's life. Um, and I'm, you obviously must have seen Dirksen in action before, but uh, yeah, but really not much. I mean, I don't. I think he was. Let's see. When did he die? And was it April? It was September. Or September. So, you know, I'd had little opportunity to watch Dirksen, but I don't think he was even himself. February, March, April, May. Then I know when he finally got sick and wasn't even around. But, uh, he didn't welcome you and the, and the other newcomers to the Senate in any kind of formal uh, way. I don't or, remember any yeah. any event that really yeah. you know, just sort of separates from any, anything else. Yeah. I have a better recollection of Senator Ruska for some reason, maybe because he was a neighbor and he sort of took an interest in me and this kind of thing. He later said mediocrity wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> the Supreme Court. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but he was, I thought, a pretty good guy. Yeah. Who who were the who were the people who sort of stood out at that point on on either on either side of the aisle? Uh, or, or who? I mean, well, did, Senator. Uh, let's see. Senator from Mississippi, Senator Stennis. Stennis. I think I've told the story when my predecessor, Senator Carlson, said, when you get to the Senate, you want to go have a visit with Senator Stennis and get to know him. He's a gentleman, da da da, and he was. And I did. I followed his advice and told Senator Stennis, his good friend, Senator Carlson, it would be good if we got acquainted. And he just a good, you know, didn't agree with him philosophically on everything, but standpoint of being a gentleman and never getting up railing against somebody else in the Senate and all those things that that I did sometimes uh, didn't come from him. So was was he emblematic of a of a, of the way the Senate had been? Uh, well, particularly really the was, South, sort of the, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And the other senator from Mississippi, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, Eastland. Eastland had his cigar, and he would kind of slump down in his seat. He was pretty tough, but he's a different person than, but you look at, see, up, see what the change is from today with, Lot, for example, and of course I think he worked. He worked for Congressman Smith, I think, on the House side. But anyway, we had uh, Senator Baker was there at the time, and Senator Hanson, Senator Curtis, Senator Allott from Colorado. Uh, Is Margaret Chase Smith still? 
in the Senate? Oh, yeah. She was there and had a rose on her desk every morning. <laughs> was she, she the was only the woman? Who, yeah, she was the only woman. My best, in fact, I went up to do a fundraiser for her in Maine, and she was very friendly. I, I never understood why she wouldn't let Jimmy Stewart become a general, you know, the actor. She blocked his really? nomination every year for some reason, I don't know. And, uh... Ed Brooke was in the Senate. Ed Brooke that. was there. Yeah, that's right. You were... Were you with Ed the No, I didn't, on? not until Le later on. Yeah. But, and, uh, but then, you know, the Republican Party had two wings. I mean, it had, you know, it had a Northeastern... The Goldwater Wing. Liberal. Uh, Scott Wing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, Jake Javits was uh, in the Senate. I mean... Oh, he was good, too. He, was he? Right. Hard worker. Oh. I remember on the New York boat on... Aiding New York, which a lot of Republicans oppose, he said, "All I want is your vote on cloture. You know, you don't have to vote for the authorization or the appropriate. Just let me bring it up for a vote, which I agreed to do." But uh, he is very, very good, very persuasive, tougher nails. But he believed in the Republican Party, just thought it ought to shift a little. That wing of the party is essentially gone, isn't it? It's down to three or four in the Senate. A couple of from Maine and Arnold Specter and maybe Norm Coleman from Minnesota. There are not many left. Uh, probably missing one, but yeah. It, the, and what kind of contact did you have with Nixon himself during that first term? I mean, obviously he was responsible for your becoming RNC chairman, but uh, it was just a Yeah, well, I, I remember uh, the convention in Miami where I was on the escort committee in 68, and... Uh, There were eight of us on the escort. That was my really first contact at any any level. Hmm. I mean, he'd, he'd been in Kansas, in Pratt, Kansas, to raise money for me. And I, but uh, when I became chairman, you know, I, I saw Nixon fairly often. Not alone, but I was invited to cabinet meetings and stuff like Republican meetings, leadership meetings, not cabinet meetings. You never sat around the table, but you sat, you know, along with the staff. But I think, well, that ended when I think I mentioned Watergate once too often in one of those meetings. I was picking up a lot of static around the country on Watergate. As I remember, I'm not, for some reason, I wasn't invited to very many meetings after that. Probably the work of Haldeman. <laughs> yeah, tell me, Haldeman, I assume, was a, was a piece of work? Yeah. Ehrlichman, I didn't know very well, but there was some guy named Kerli, too, who generally when you called, you'd get Kerli, K-E-H, 
RLI. Hmm. I think he's Holloman's assistant. Uh, but and Holloman's daughter worked in the Senate uh, cloakroom. I think it was long after he'd gone. Very nice young lady. But uh, you know, Holloman was just didn't know anything about Congress that I know of, and he just tough and loyal to Nixon and. That was the only game in town for him. So putting up with these senators and stuff was must have been a pain in the rear. But Ehrlichman barely knew him, knew who he was. But now President Ford told the story about um, the one time Ehrlichman deigned to come up to the Hill for a meeting with the leadership. Uh, he didn't make any friends by falling asleep. And he in, fell in asleep. The, in the yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a good sign. That's the bird for Hayakawa. California. He used to sleep daily, you know, take little naps. But uh, yeah, where the, what do you do? Do you cover? I assume both parties have members. Maybe they're elderly. Maybe they're a little bit past their prime. Or maybe uh, they're. Or maybe they've had a drink. I mean, it, you know. You try to keep them off the floor. I can, without naming names, recall. A couple on our side, we had to, quietly as we could, escort from the floor, get them back in the cloakroom for the press. So somebody wrote a big story back home that so-and-so was, and I think there were some on the other side, too. Yeah. And I assume that would be even more of a problem now with television. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just, you don't have that luxury. I think one who criticized the... Uh, Tower nomination had a problem himself. Yeah. So, you know, they'll throw bricks, you know. <laughs> how, how did you uh, become Republican national chairman? Well, let's see. I get a call from, I don't, I don't think I lobbied for it. I don't know precisely how it, I know how it almost slipped away. I, I know all the details on that. But uh, I think the call was from the president. I don't know whether it was a total surprise or not, but because I'd been pretty active on his behalf in the Senate. But then once that call was made, the little opposition started developing the Senate with you, Scott, and uh, Saxby from Ohio sort of leading the charge. And I think Senator Scott, we were good friends, but I, I think he felt that, you know, I was fairly, fairly vocal that maybe I might upstage the Republican Senate leader, though he had been chairman of the party himself. So... I think that's why he had Saxby do it. Said I couldn't sell beer on a troop ship or something. <laughs> One of Saxby's comments. No. I mean, it's a funny one. Yeah. So uh, it probably didn't seem funny at the time. But so then they started to get so bad. They started. They were going to. They called me up and said, "Well, we just sorry, this is not, not going to happen." As I remember, I got the call. Uh, late afternoon and 
So I headed for the RNC. Rogers Morton was the chairman. And I started trying to figure out what to do. And it was, I remember the raining cats and dogs. And I can't remember how I got together with uh, the White House. Oklahoma, the speechwriter, the oh Bryce Harlow, Bryce Harlow, because Bryce had been very friendly to me, and I knew him pretty well, and he used to come to my office. So he came up to the RNC, and we sat there for I don't know how many hours trying to figure out some way because I threatened to leave the Senate. I said, you know. This is going to be very embarrassing to me because the word has sort of leaked out that I'm going to be the new chairman. When then something happens that it's not going to happen, I don't know how I could handle that at home. What would be the reason? Unless I said I decided I didn't want to be chairman, I said I'm not going to do that. So after almost an all-night session, we, you know, I remember a written agreement a written statement of principles or something where uh, I would stay on for a while and Nixon would help me raise money for my 74 election. Uh, I think I would even help select a new chairman who they already had Bush in mind. I mean. I remember going up to the UN to talk to him, and of course he already it wasn't any big surprise. He knew he was going to be the next chairman. Uh, was that difficult? Yeah, in a way, because I, I knew I, I, I wasn't leaving voluntarily. My theory was we'd been through a tough election, and I wanted to enjoy being chairman for a while. We were not raising money and beating people over their head; just be chairman of the party. Because we were doing some pretty good things, we took the door off the doors off the front doors off of the open door policy. We started working with a group of uh, black Republicans, uh, Republican conference. So we thought we were doing some things that you know maybe they weren't huge, but they were at least reaching out to people. And that's the. Time who was it? Uh, Phillips wrote the book *Emerging Republican Majority*. Yeah, Kevin Phillips. It was later turned far, far, far to the left. Yeah. His wife used to work Ways and Means Committee in the House, but. Uh, did, did you sense that Nixon cared personally about those kind of party building activities? Uh, I, I think I think to some extent. I remember, was it? I think it was '68, maybe it was '72. I wanted to present Mrs. Nixon with some something Republican on it, a sweater or something. And she said, "Well, we got to worry about the D's as well as the R's or something." So I never got to make the presentation. Hmm. 
So whether that was something that had talked about, I, I think he wanted, you know, he wanted to be the man who brought us to the power and we stayed in power. And he had a lot of good ideas, as you know, a lot of very progressive ideas for, I don't know if he could get the nomination today. Yeah. Probably not. He almost be a man without a party. Yeah. There's, there's really no obvious place for someone like Nixon. Yeah, welfare well, well, reform, well, environmental protection agency. I mean, yeah. You, of course, you spoke at Mrs. Nixon's funeral. Did you have, uh, you know, much contact or? Not with, a lot. With, with the, yeah. Yeah. I don't think she had a lot of contact with many legislative types. Yeah. 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 I don't know what, well, you probably know better now. What, well, but just. Her contacts were fairly private, personal, friends. Yeah. 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 Probably, uh, well, it's not a very public person. I think that. Yeah. Not like Julie, for example. Right, right. The, let me back up um, because. Um, of course, Vietnam is is raging, oh, yeah. um, and you at one point offered a an amendment to repeal the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Ironically, sort of a parallel with what some Democrats are talking about now in terms of yeah, the I've Iraqi been, War resolution. What was the what was the background? Yeah, I've, of I've that? been called about that because some law firm here was checking it out. I guess for Republicans. I don't know. Not our law firm, but another. That's when Fulbright said I stole his cow, you know, <laughs> it was his amendment. He wanted to, of course, they later passed an amendment in the committee, but mine had already passed. So, And, w and what was the point of, 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 of the whole exercise? I mean, why, why were you introducing his amendment, in effect? Well, I think once, just to... You know, he's kind of a strange person in many ways and kind yeah. of arrogant. Or I thought, well, you know, why not some junior senator <laughs> have a little, I don't say fun, but a little participate in the process there a little bit. <laughs> so I assume there was a little scheming going on. <laughs> did he uh, Did he? Plus, we knew it was going to pass because there were a lot of people felt, you know, that Johnson took this little Gulf of Tonkin resolution and, and it ballooned. You know, we sent more troops, more casualties, more. And I think Fulbright, I, I think he voted against it initially, one of, one of two, as I recall. Right. So I think he felt some ownership there and probably did, but I, I don't remember what. Probably a little impulsive. I think I just decided, well, let's have a little fun today. <laughs> so. now, now, you you also established uh, sort of this, to some people, unlikely a friendship with Hubert Humphrey. Oh, yeah, we were great buddies. Yeah. And how did that start? Well, I think we... Uh, we knew each other through Duane Andreas. Archer Daniels Midland, who had this Seaview Hotel in Bell Harbor. 
And Humphrey used to go there a lot, so did McGovern. I mean, mostly Democrats who weren't Republicans around. And I, I think it, it, that Hubert said, you know, I'm going down to Val Harbor in a couple of weeks. Why don't you go down and spend the weekend? You'd have a great time, da-da-da. And I took him up on it. But we'd been, we're on the Ag Committee, too, which, you know, you get to be friends when you're seated across each other. We used to have a lot of fun. I remember once he was advocating more for dairy farmers than even the dairy farmers wanted, you know. So I pulled out a quart of milk and put handed it to him across the table. He didn't want only parity. He wanted more than parity. So we, we, and he was uh, just a good, good friend, a good sense of humor. And, uh, Did he ever talk, by the way, about LBJ? I mean, that clearly must have been no. a very awkward relationship that, that they had. Did LBJ just send him a pencil with an eraser? <laughs> That's all he needs, a vice president. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a very close relationship. But Hubert was, you know, a great orator and speaker, and he had trouble sometimes ending. <laughs> he had the Joe Biden syndrome, or I guess maybe Biden has the Humphrey syndrome. They used to get Humphrey that he'd go on issues and answer. It would be not plural, it would be singular. Issue and answer, and it would be over. The program is over. The guy's got a whole list of questions, and time is up. On the other hand, Mansfield would go on, and <laughs> the guy would be out of questions, and he had all the time left. So, was he still? Was Mike Mansfield still uh, majority leader when you came to the Senate? Yeah. I think he's the longest-serving uh, majority leader. I think Tom Daschle is second. Really? Yeah. Did you Did you uh, get to know? Yeah, Mansfield? I like him. Yeah, I thought he was a great guy. Yeah. Very decent, fair. You know, he made partisan speeches now and then, but I thought he treated all of us. And of course, as I remember the numbers, they could treat be pretty nice to us. We weren't going to bother anybody. What do we have, 38 or yeah. something like that? Yeah. So we weren't much of a threat. But uh, except they needed us on civil rights and stuff like that. You know, that, that brings up a larger question. The difference in the, in the rules between the House and the Senate. Um, was it frustrating? I mean, people talk about being frustrated in the Senate because it's almost constructed to prevent action from, oh, yeah. from taking place. Particularly if you're the leader, you can load up what they call the tree so nobody can offer any amendments. You know, you can do anything. You can, you can adjourn the Senate, recess the Senate, on a quorum call and leave town and nobody's ever going to get to call it off. Somebody will object. So if you're the leader, you've got a lot of power in the Senate, probably more than, well, I don't know about the speakers, probably got a lot of power. But for a freshman senator coming from the House, was it, oh. was it frustrating? Yeah. It took me a long time to catch on. I met, even when I was the leader, I used to go to Robert Byrd <laughs> and ask him questions about something that I was going to maybe use against him. You know, 
and he was very honest about it. You know, can't do that, or maybe that might work. But I mean, he wasn't trying to help me and enable me, but at least he would help me. And uh, but I relied a lot on the parliamentarian too. And the, and of course, when they're in control, they appoint the parliamentarian. So you know that it nice as a person may be. He got there because some Democrat appointed or some Republican. And uh, your friendship with McGovern. Now, were, were you were you friends in '72? I mean, you were obviously saying some harsh things about his uh, his presidential candidacy. Let's see, I think you remember. I think I remember you saying once. That they were th stuff would come down from the White House, especially from Colson's shop. Ch good old Chucky, yeah. Tell, tell me about that. I remember one occasion. He, I think I was going to Baltimore to speak, and they had a personal attack on Mrs. Graham, the Washington Post. And they sent a speech up, you know, at four o'clock, and you're getting in your car at 5 o'clock, and you're not supposed to even read it until you get there, and then you read it to and, and I refused to do it. I said, I'm not going to do this. How do I, you know, who told you all this stuff? I don't, I don't know this is a fact, so I'm not going to do it. Well, you're the Republican chairman on it. But, you know, they were pretty, uh, and sometimes they had some good ideas. You know, I was not, I was partisan, but I, I wasn't, crazy. So, uh, and the Washington Post obviously was not on our side on it. On They're even more liberal, actually a little more moderate paper now. But, uh, yeah, Chuck had some zingers. I can't remember. He had some help, too. If you didn't watch it, they'd stick something in your speeches. Sort of paid to read them over once before you gave them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember uh, how you found out about Watergate? Let's see. That was, uh, what was the break-in day? Ju yeah, June 17th. Seventy-two. Trying to think where I was. We we were. It's interesting. We were talking to Pat Buchanan. Uh, I was talking to Pat Buchanan in another context last week, and I asked him. I should have known. I said, "Do you remember where you were when you read about?" He said, "Oh, I didn't read about it." He said, "I got a phone call about it." Yeah. I, and the day after it happened, I said, "Really?" He said, "Oh, yeah." He said. We were routinely receiving photostats of stuff from the Muskie, you know, campaign. And he said, the minute I heard it, I figured it had to be our guys. <laughs> you know, no doubt at all. Yeah, I don't know what I, I, I couldn't swear I got a phone call or read it or heard it on the news or something. But initially it was just... You know, it wasn't a big story until it started unfolding. And 
I, I never have understood why they did it. I mean, wasn't any reason that I could think of. Buchanan's explanation, which is, you know, interesting. You know, Nixon would say all these off-the-wall things. Yeah. Get this guy. I want to, you know, so forth. And, and, the, and the people who really looked out for his interests would, you know, not do it. Or, you know, the next day go back and he would not want to do it. Buchanan's theory is someone heard it and went out and did it without bothering to, you know, check. And, uh, you know, they saluted and went out and did it. Um, but as a, as a party chairman, I mean, you were put on the spot. Oh, yeah. How, I mean, Fortunately, how, I had this creep organization committed to reelect the president. Creep seemed like a good name for it. But. And uh, who was chairman of that? This, uh, well, of course, Mitchell was there for... Mitchell was there, but I think they... I think the titular Ed was sort of a, was a congressman from Minnesota, McGregor. Clark McGregor. McGregor, Clark. Very bright guy. I remember we ran against each other for chairman of the freshman class, and I beat him by a couple of votes, which he never forgot. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Clark was, but being the chairman, obviously you were, not going to be overlooked and when they had the investigation. And I remember Kansas City Star reporter Joe Lastelick asking me, said, I've got to ask you this question that's being raised by a lot of Democrats. With you live so close to the break-in, there's some rumor that the burglary tools were hidden in your apartment. Really? And that's how, you know, how bad it was. I've since turned that into a joke, saying that was my night off. I was on a job in Chicago, you know, that kind of thing. So, sort of pass it off. But uh, did Woodward or Bernstein ever call you? No. And then uh, Senator Irvin made a finding in the committee report that totally absolved me and said I was no way was Senator Robert J. Dole involved in any any of the planning. Da 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 which is very nice of him, which was true. I mean, yeah. you never know what you would have done had the president called and said, but you do something and that is totally above board, all that stuff. So I'm glad they didn't call me, let Creep handle it. So. And 72, I mean, 72 is a bad year. 72 is your marriage ends. Yeah. You've got... The Watergate scandal, mushrooming. Um, we didn't pay the price till '74, but but and then of course, and you know, what thanks do you get? Yeah. But being ushered out of the well, I get championship chopper ride uh, up to Camp David with the uh, then Attorney General from Arizona, Kleindienst. Richard Klein Deist, who was about to get the axe too. And I remember having a nice visit with Nixon and thanking me for all of 
thousands of miles that I'd traveled for the party and giving me a Camp David jacket and and saying that you know we I think it's time you kind of move on you've got an election coming up and you don't want to be hampered by the all this party stuff as he used to say you know uh, which I hadn't didn't have in mind as I think as I tried to explain to him I thought well I'd stay a while have a little fun so I think Kleindienst was sacked about that same time and where did the Bush connection come in I mean they wanted you or who was well, that I think it was to... all you look back on it was all sort of a ploy you know Bob Dole think he's really involved in selecting this new person and of course Bush was trying to get something he didn't like it where he was he wanted to be number one somewhere and uh, and I don't think he thought being chairman of the party was any big prize I haven't read his, what he said about that in his book but I went up he was very nice Obviously, he was not surprised that he was, and I don't. He wasn't very excited, as I recall. Which probably think about it, he probably didn't want the job anyway. <laughs> but at least he was numero uno. He, he was. He was. Was he ambassador of the UN at that point? Yeah. But when you're chairman of the party, when your uh, your party has the White House, you, you're not chairman of much. You don't make any decisions, you know. You don't speak for anybody except the White House. It's your job is just keeping everybody together and driving around the country making speeches. I don't think, but I mean, I don't know what George Bush had in mind, but I, I can't think that was really what he had hoped for. Did you ever discuss any of this with Nixon in later years? I mean, just didn't talk about no, it. Unpleasant. Uh, pushed me out of the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are people. Well, I never, you know, I I never really blamed Nixon. I always blamed somebody else down the line. I mean, I always thought, uh, like again, I've said many times. Little thing like Nixon would extend his left hand to me to shake hands, and and if you told him privately, I'd like to come down, maybe take five minutes of your time or something. You generally get it done. You wouldn't get it done if you talked to anybody else. And I think he looked at me as a friend because I was sort of his chief defender on the Senate floor on Vietnam, and. So I always blame somebody else, either Haldeman or somebody that. But then I, I, I probably didn't realize at the time that that uh, Ambassador Bush was looking for new challenges, and uh, of course he had his eye on the prize too. So he was turned out it was probably a pretty good move for him. 
I remember when uh, the morning we met at the RNC and all the committee men and women and chairmen were there, I said, here they come dragging the new chairman in now. <laughs> of course, Bush comes up to the podium. Well, we got along fine. I mean, it wasn't his fault. So. It probably, as it turned out, it was probably a good thing I left because I had a tough race. And I didn't need much association with the party once Watergate got pretty hot. Did you know in 70, I mean, did you know at that point, say the end of 72, that you were likely to have a, a tough race? Yeah, when Bill Roy announced, I knew it was going to be a tough race. And, and tell us who Bill Roy is. Uh, Bill Roy was a member of Congress then. He was a practicing physician in Topeka. Very hardworking, able, I wouldn't say a liberal Democrat, but you know, right close to that. Uh, and of course, you said I'd been chairman of the party, and then Watergate was heating up and pursuing ensuing years and the divorce, and uh, when abortion became for the first time a national issue. I remember the New York Times covering our race and a lot of national attention on abortion. And some of the pro-life, really wasn't pro-life then, it was these sort of crazies who went around with fetuses in a jar and uh, save babies, vote for Dole, kill babies, vote for Roy, I mean, terrible stuff. And I don't know that how that played in Kansas, but it was just over the top, and accused him of doing abortions, performing abortions, and maybe he had, I don't know. But uh, but the whole con you had it all up. How much of an issue was the divorce? I mean, um, just was it the kind of thing people whispered about? Probably. Yeah, I don't. <coughs> I don't recall it ever being. Uh, you know, a big, big issue. Uh, but again, you considered a failing. I mean, you, you know, something happened in your life that didn't. And you got to accept responsibility for it. But uh, but you're, it, you're right. It, it, it's in actually it's in January of '73. Ironically, it's the day Lyndon Johnson died, the 22nd of January, that the Supreme Court rules on the in the Roe v. Wade. So literally, even as Watergate is exploding, uh, there's this whole new kind of unstable element introduced into the political discussion. Um, were you comfortable? Talking about uh, abortion as an issue, um, I mean, my sense is that, uh, and I've thought that with President Ford, that there's a kind of Midwestern reticence. I mean, a kind of a privacy factor that. Yeah, uh, and well, we have. I think Kansas is one of the most liberal abortion laws now in the country. Uh, but we had those, you know, the rigid zealous people, and I never even, you know, when did abortion become an issue? It wasn't an issue when Nixon ran for president. No, 
But then once the once the court, yeah, and so and so early seventy three. So it became sort of the test case, and whether we wanted it or not, that's what we got to talk about. The New York Times didn't come out to cover the price of wheat. Uh, they saw this as a big, you know, a doctor who's in that business and somebody else. So uh, now you were behind. I mean, in that race. Well, I was behind. In fact, I've told my parents the night before. I said, I, you know, I don't think we can. I'm prepared to lose. I don't think it's going to happen. Like I see how I can win or just too much out there. And we didn't win by much, 15,000 votes. And I think the farmers sort of saved me in western Kansas. The uh, Because you had, obviously, a Nixon's resignation. Um, and then the brief Ford honeymoon. And then, of course, the pardons. And what did that do? That was a... Just another anchor, and you already had several. How many anchors does it take to stop a ship? I don't know. But, uh, Didn't you fire your media team at one point? Wasn't there a, uh, I mean, there was a shakeup that took place in the campaign. Yeah, I think Huck Boyd uh, sort of took charge late in the campaign. Uh, former national, well, you know. National, good friend, former state chairman, all that. And who, can't remember who was. I thought you had, as I recall, somebody, you had, I think it was the first campaign where you actually hired outside, you know, professionals, media, commercial producers, that yeah. sort of thing. And they made the famous, there was a famous ad. Oh, the mud um, ad? Oh, they yeah. got, a, got an award for it, too, yeah. Tell me about that. It was a great ad. I mean, it might have saved my bacon. Dave Owen was involved in that campaign, too. But Dave was sort of a, he did a good job. I think he really got active late late, late in the campaign when he, everybody thought it was going south. I think he and Huck got together and said, wait a minute. I remember meeting in a motel in Johnson County when the polls showed us four or five points behind or something. And I can't. Manager was probably me, would be my guess. (laughs) (laughs) Probably manage my own campaign, that's probably part of it. I think it was a Boston ad firm that did the. But tell me, what was the background? What was the ad, and why why did you need the ad? Well, we needed this, this image of. Senator Bob Dole was pretty badly tarnished uh, personally and then all the other things that happened politically, whether it was Vietnam or Nixon or the pardon or whatever, it sort of kept piling up. And I think even the farm prices were low. You know, so it all didn't rain, so they blamed that on me. So... Uh, We had to sort of reestablish that a lot of these things that were said were untrue. So somebody did a lot of good work and did a lot of research and 
They would just take them on one, two, three, I think about seven different things and show the mud. And then this would be, you know, well, you remember the ad. You end up with a clean slate. But there was an image of, of you and yeah. basically this litany of alleged failures would be accompanied by mud being right. hurled at the screen. But then I end up with a clean face, you know. So, and apparently it, it not only won an award, I think it caught the attention of a lot of Kansans who probably uh, may have been drifting away or were undecided or... But you learn a lot from a close race like that. I mean, it taught me a lesson, you know, start doing more at home because I was doing a lot of traveling, chairman of the party all over the country. Uh, we still had good constituent work. We still tried to see everybody who came in from Kansas. But I don't know, in our little state, people like to see you around other than night before the election or the week or the month or just walking up and down the streets, you don't have to make any speech. I assume that must have been the most expensive campaign you'd ever waged up until that time. Oh, in seventy yeah. four. Oh yeah, I don't know what we spent, but it's probably all we could raise. I remember we had a deficit. Once you win you can always pay off the deficit. Yeah, my first race cost nineteen thousand a house. Which is a lot of money. Now, to this day, there's still controversy over the. You had one debate with Roy, was it at the at the end of the campaign? Yeah, and uh, I think it was Hutchinson, Kansas. Okay. Fairgrounds, I remember. Got to be pretty nasty too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. was there anything in that debate that you wish you hadn't said, or? Yeah, I think it was about abortion. I don't remember, but but it was. It didn't do me any good. The debate didn't do me any good, but uh, didn't help me any. And we had our diehards, and he had his diehards, and then we had the media, uh, which was sort of split. But uh, and people were just beginning to grapple with that issue. There weren't legions of people who were calling themselves pro-life, or legions of people who call themselves pro-choice. There were you know, in the formative stages. So instead of highlighting it, I should have dropped it, you know. But I think we, you know, it was kind of a, we're, we're both pretty testy. I mean, you know, Roy can be pretty testy himself, so. Did did President Ford campaign for you that Let's fall? See. I think you said at one point, I think you were quoted saying that the Nixon. best thing he could do is fly over. Or Nixon, yeah. The best oh. thing Nixon could do is fly over. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't land anywhere. So. <laughs> What's that evil? Hear no evil. See no evil and evil. But uh, I don't think Ford was. Yeah. Was the pardon a real dead weight, I mean, you... Just, yeah, then it was. It's like, yeah. you know, what was it, 2080? Now it's 80-20. So history judges some of those things, and 
boy, if when you, you thought everything else had fallen on you, then you get the H-bomb. So... He, he he did sort of make that up though two years later, didn't he? For yeah. you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's just try to get to that point, then we'll wrap up today. But I mean, in terms of '74, um, well, election night. What do you do? What do you remember? Well, I remember being holed up in the motel room for I don't know uh, quite a while because you know we. we very close. It was going sort of back and forth, and we were ahead, and we were behind. We, and we knew, or at least I knew at that point, if I was going to win, depend on what happened in Goodland, Kansas, and Atwood, and Dodge City, and and uh, and some extent Johnson County, which was a Republican stronghold. I knew in Topeka and Wichita and others I'd in trouble, but. Uh, so we were just sort of, my, as I remember, I was ready to say we're not. It's not going to happen. But then, around ten or eleven o'clock, we had a few votes ahead, and then more, a few more, a few more. And one was at fifteen thousand four hundred and some. So that was sort of a. Resurrection, <laughs> back from the political ash heap. Do you remember uh, when uh, when he conceded? I'm not sure he ever has conceded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember a phone call, but we've since had conversations, and he's attended a few of the things at Dole Institute. And his son's been active in politics. And but he didn't was you know he didn't want to lose. I mean, I think he thought he had it, and something happened. So. Um, so you go back for a second term, and um, there must have been by then well a strain within the party. Reagan hadn't announced, but clearly there was talk about a Reagan campaign. I mean, what was going on within the Kansas Republican Party in 75, early Oh, uh, They were, you know, they were hoping Reagan would get in the race. I mean, you know, for some reason Ford wasn't a clear favorite, didn't light a fire under very many people. But I signed on, I don't know when, to go around the country and go to Missouri and Kansas and other states, talk to delegates. I think uh, Bob Griffin was with me. and So we got into it fairly early, and I don't know how many states we did, but I think Ford appreciated that. Tell, tell us about Gerald Ford. I mean, you you know you knew him uniquely. I mean, what? Uh, yeah, well, I know. I I remember him as somebody who uh, you personally or fairly quickly had a relationship with. You liked him. He's a good guy, decent guy. 
on one of these hot shots, big shots, kind of lorded over you as a fr freshman congressman. And not that I had all of that much contact with him in the first couple of years, but uh, so I sort of you sort of pick out people and whatever whatever you do in life and say, well, I, I kind of like what that person's doing. Maybe keep an eye on him or her. So I kind of like what Ford was doing. And he was so smart when it came to uh, defense matters because he was ranking Republican on the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. And he knew this stuff backwards and forward. Plus he had this great camaraderie on the other side of the aisle. You know, people like Jerry Ford. And so then when he decided to run against Halleck, it was three of us from Kansas decided to would vote for Ford. And what did he win by three votes? I th yeah, that was uh, 1965, right after the Goldwater debacle. Yes. Yeah, that was another great. <laughs> so, and Ford, of course, I think appreciated that. I mean, not, I can't. Could do a lot for you because we're in the minority, but I don't know. I just I just thought he was a, as I've said many times, a good decent person that you'd like to have as your neighbor and sit down and talk with. You think there's a little bit of the of the Midwestern or two? I mean, the, that there is a distinct kind of Midwestern yeah. value system. And, I think uh, so. Some, yeah. Yeah. Even though he was upper Midwest, but, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he was pure enough. But you think he took a bum rap on that whole question of intelligence? On the what? Uh, the whole issue of intelligence. Oh, you know, yeah. you think he took a bum rap? No question about it. In fact, we—I remember we went out and made speeches about how he's what he's number three at Yale or whatever it was, and the, uh, all American football player and all this done, all these things he had done. Yeah, the old line, it couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. And he fell a time or two once, once getting off the plane, right? Slipped. Yeah, yeah. So that all played into, but when you listen to him on the Senate floor explaining some complicated defense appropriation bill, I mean, not that many people had a chance to do that, but you understood pretty quickly this guy was, he not only knew what time it was, he knew how the clock was made. So. Don't you think there's a, there's a bias that, uh, first of all, people think mid, because Midwesterners speak slowly, yeah. that they think slowly. And secondly, if you're not facile or, quote, eloquent, even if you buy the eloquence, you know, that's, yeah. that's how opinion makers... But he was judge. a Yale. I mean, you talk about, you know, he was one of the... Uh, from the right school, but uh, and I, I don't, you know, I, as I remember in the House, I don't remember any, any press people jumping on Gerald Ford. It's only when you get up the ladder a ways, you know, when you're in the minority, even though you may be the Republican leader, well, you're not going to cause much harm and uh, create many waves, but they had the 
Evan Jerry show for a while, you know. That, oh, yeah, Evan, Evan Jerry? It used to be Evan Charlie, then it would be Evan Jerry. Just try to get a little press. I mean, you know, Republicans, just to get your name in the paper, I mean, the party's name is almost had to buy an ad. <laughs> so they would have these little, I think it was on a Saturday, or Friday, not Saturday. Or maybe it's during the week, because Friday would not be a good day to get any press. But, and I knew other people from Michigan, Cedarburg, and Griffin, and others who were close to Ford, and they were all good guys. And, and they all thought a lot of him. So, was he the dean of the Michigan delegation? I think he probably was. Oh, either he or Cedarburg. Yeah. Um, the vice presidency. Now, you you were you saw Nelson Rockefeller, um, who was a pretty unhappy vice president. Did you? Yeah. Did you were, were you there? Remember, there was this famous incident where I think he was called to task, maybe by Senator Byrd. He was uh, for some ruling uh, about um, it had something to do with the cloture. Um, and eventually, actually, they, they reduced the, the, the cloture from two-thirds to, to 60. But uh, somehow Rockefeller was tried to involve himself in the, in the debate on the floor or something. And, yeah, and, or remember. didn't yeah, recognize yeah, someone. Yeah. I think maybe Jim Allen from Alabama was involved. But, yeah, I do remember. But did, did, you, did you have any contact with him when he was vice president? Oh, he used to go up and, you know, say hello when he was presiding or uh, go in the back little room there and say hello. And, and I remember once he invited me out to his, his house for breakfast, as I remember. I think two or three of us sort of junior members. Was that the place out on Fox Hall Road? Yeah. I can't remember what we talked about, but. I can't remember what we had for breakfast, but <laughs> well, I'd be impressed if you did. <laughs> yeah, it's probably pretty good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> eggs Rockefeller. <laughs> did um, he? He was not happy as vice president. No, I mean, did that was pretty. That was no secret. Yeah, but I, I don't think he was happy about being kicked out either. Yeah. I mean, he had obviously wanted to be president of the United States, and uh, as I've as I've said, if he'd have done that finger thing earlier, he might have been president. No, that's right. You were what's what's that? In fact, that's a perfect uh, on on which to end today. You tell us about that. Uh, or was that Binghamton? Yeah, it was Binghamton, New York, in the '76 campaign. You were running for vice president, and um, he Somebody, was... Well, we were up there, and he was... Elizabeth and I were there. We remember being on the plane with him. I remember talking to Joe Canzeri, who was sort of his right-hand guy, a nice guy, and, and... And Nelson, you know, he became... He really wanted to help me. I mean, he, he may have been very bitter about the whole thing, but he didn't hold it against me. I remember him telling me, never read today's papers. So if you read today's papers, you'll spend all day reacting. 
let somebody else read the papers and there's something really important. That, so read today's papers tomorrow. Or <laughs> so I thought it made a lot of sense. Because politicians have a, a habit of picking up the paper and if they see something out and pound somebody or put a bill in or whatever without much thought. But in Binghamton, I think he was just getting kind of warmed up and saying a few words and was going to introduce me. And there's some hecklers, people in the, I don't remember even what they were saying anymore. And then that's when he gave the famous sign. One, I, one, one finger salute. Yeah. I think he said something too. I, what would you say? Anyway, he got the message and he got a lot of applause. <laughs>